Welcome everyone to this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and welcome to the show, regular contributor Emily Kornheiser, who, as we come to the end of the session, I kind of expected that we'd have to do this show with you like on a galloping horse and I'd have to run (laughs) along behind you. Well, instead of a galloping horse, and nice to see you today, Olga, instead I just canceled and or stood you up two days in a row. So I'm (laughs) glad that I can be here, not on a galloping horse, and that we managed to find a time to sit down together. Yes. Good to see you, too. Good to see you. What? I am getting press releases fast and furious from the State House these days. Oh, that's so fun. Mm -hmm. I should send out more press releases, but... Yeah, I one more thing to do. So I don't need to. <laughs> you don't um, need to. <laughs> we are doing some really cool stuff. I'm not, I didn't write up a tidy list of all the things because there's going to be so many more things next week and that's when I'll make my tidy list. But some things that feel really exciting this week is the child care bill came back from the Senate unanimously out of the Senate, came over to the House. We um, concurred with their amendments and it's off to the governor so good we um and you know for a rehash for folks who didn't catch that episode however many months ago that was Mm. um really significant investments to basically set a minimum amount that families need to pay for child care to move us towards a system in vermont where no family would pay more than 10 percent of their income in child care costs to significantly increase the wages of childcare providers so that we can have good quality childcare providers and childcare providers can have a good quality of life. And um, also some cool stuff around student loan forgiveness mm-hmm. for childcare provider training. So there's more details, but that's an exciting one. Um, we, the Senate, let's see, a couple of weeks ago, the House passed a bill decriminalizing buprenorphine possession. Um, which is an opioid replacement drug mm-hmm. that sometimes um, is easier to access on the street than it might be in rehab um, for folks who either don't want to access formal rehab or can't access formal rehab. Um, so that's a really great path to making sure people in our communities stay alive. And this and is that passed the Senate today. Um, this has been an ongoing conversation. Hasn't this been a bit of an uphill push to get um, this passed? It's been a really uphill push. It's been quite a few years. I know we did a really deep dive on harm reduction strategies yep. a couple times, but particularly about buprenorphine and opioid stuff um, more than once. Um, the most recent conversation we had about this and a few other bills was with two folks from COSU, the Consortium on Substance mm-hmm. Use in Vermont. Um, but yeah, no, that's incredible. And the House debate on the issue was one of the most inspiring political moments I've ever been a part of. And people really talked about how they don't want anyone else to die. And they might have had a different thought perspective on this a few years ago. And like today, knowing what they know and like loving who they've loved. They just don't want anyone else to die. It was really incredible um, to see people be vulnerable and curious and admit that they'd been wrong and be able to change their minds. And it was amazing. 
Um, we, the, there was a house bill on consent and redefining consent, sort of modernizing the definition of sexual consent. Mm -hmm. That was having a very rough road of it in the Senate and has now, um, I think, gotten out of the Senate committee and passed the Senate. That feels like a really good win. Um, and it's coming back to the House. Those are the big ones that jump out of out at me about things that have gone back and forth. Um, the budget is in committee of conference right now, significant investments in housing, significant in investments in broadband that we've talked about. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of investments in Vermonters quality of life. And we'll talk about some of the tax implications of that in a little bit. And then in my own committee, we've been working on S13, which is the pupil waiting factors report. And we voted that out of committee unanimously. Mm -hmm. And so that's an implementation plan and study um, connected to correcting the pupil weights and really looking at the long-term impacts and successes of Act 60. Right. Um, and so the Senate, it's in our House Appropriations Committee right now, but the Senate's already starting to look at the changes we made to see if they can concur. Mm -hmm. That feels great. There's a rental housing registry bill that also um, is in our committee right now that's doing some good work to make sure we actually know how much rental housing we have. Yes, Olga. Long-term rentals, short-term rentals. Oh. Oh. Well done. Thank you. They're both in the same registry. Um, and then there's some health and safety stuff in, for the long-term rentals, but both long-term and short-term rentals are in the same registry. We'll actually know in a year or two, how many properties we have for rent in Vermont and what they're being used for and um, what accessibility um, modifications they have on them, um, which is also exciting. Mm -hmm. So that's a really fun win. Um, we are finished work today in House Ways and Means on the, a new cannabis sort of update bill. Um, now that we have our the staff for the cannabis control board um, was just appointed, really. Mm -hmm. The governor was very, very late in that process. And so everything's a little bit behind. So we had to push out some fees and fee timing on it. But there's also a very cool new system built into this bill about um, how to make sure folks who have been experienced harm because of previous cannabis restrictions will be able to sort of made made whole and so there's a special fund set up in order to help people invest and start businesses in the cannabis industry okay fantastic. that's really really fun so we did some work on that um some listeners might be really excited that there's a bill that allows um, tesla to set up repair facilities in vermont um, because of this very complicated thing around automobile franchises they weren't allowed to before now hmm. they'll be able to don't have a tesla so don't I have a tesla i'm <laughs> too engaged on that one but um oh. people seem really excited about it and that's all i have for now for like brief fly-by-night updates we've been doing about a bill every hour lately in ways and means so it's a little 
So does it feel like, so we've been hearing, oh, 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 I forgot one. This one's really, really exciting. Oh, yesterday on the house floor, we voted out this bill that significantly expanded voting access. So um, we made permanent the vote by mail work that we did sort of um, as a transition point with the pandemic. So we made the vote by mail permanent and it would operate the same way it did during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. mandatory it is mailed out by the secretary of state but the voter is welcome to drop it off or bring it in or mail it back um we, ex- we have these really cool drop boxes during all of our elections in brattleboro but that's actually fairly unusual yeah and so um expanded drop boxes and some funding for the drop boxes all through the state so that's very exciting um because in a lot of places you need to like actually go find your clerk and hand it to them mm-hmm. um and then a bunch of really great stuff around ballot curing so that if you make a mistake on your ballot, you have a chance to fix it. Um, so if you like vote for too many people or you don't sign your name or things like that. Mm-hmm. Thank you for yeah. explaining So a lot that. of states, have, we have very good voting access. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you said I'm that. because when you... you just need to jump right in it. <laughs> no, when you pushed out over social media that this voting access had... Um, Past, I had two questions, and one was about voting, uh, ballot curing, because I wasn't sure if that was at the point of when the voter was voting, or when they were counting. You know, so determining whether something's a spoiled ballot. Does it does it work with spoiled ballots at all, or is it just for when the voter is voting? It's mostly about spoiled ballots, actually. It's okay. um, and so if your ballot is sort of collected and counted prior to like the final counting. Um, your so town you clerk early. is actually, and your town clerk realizes it and knows it's your ballot because it's some, there's something wrong on the envelope or something like that. Then your town clerk is actually required to be in touch with you to let you know that your ballot is spoiled. Okay. And then you can check your, um, my Vermont voter page to see if your sort of ballot has been mailed out. And then if it's been received and like, there's a few sort of stops along your ballots line. Um, that you can check on your My Voter page. And so if someone notices on their My Voter page that they sent in their ballot, but it wasn't received, they now have a remedy to sort of Mm. fix that as well. Neat. Thank you. Now, what about the voters checklist? That was the other thing I had questions about because most voter checklists are right now handled town by town. But this sounded like, at least what you put out on social media, that there's going to be one voter checklist and it will be all managed by the Secretary of State. Clerks will confer with the Secretary of State. Okay. The Secretary of State will have a master voting list so that they can um, mail out those ballots. Gotcha. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, town clerks are a wily, awesome, committed bunch. <laughs> yes, they um, are. With very varied opinions about things. Mm, I bet. And, and um, did you hear all of them? I personally did not hear all of them. I mostly just talked to the incredible town clerk in Brattleboro, Hillary. But um, I think a lot of my colleagues heard from a lot of them because a lot of my colleagues represent multiple towns with multiple mm-hmm. town clerks. And um, the town, there was a lot of deep collaboration with the town clerks to make sure we were doing something that both felt ethical for them and would not overburden their already fairly full work schedules. And um, so that, that was good. And it's always nice for me, my colleague Kelly Payala represents Londonderry, is a town clerk in Londonderry as well. 
And so it's always nice for me to really like get the nitty gritty with her about how things work when we're working on a bill like this. Okay. Yeah. Great. Now, will having this master voting list, we always hear this argument of, oh, voter fraud because people are voting twice and da, 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 da. Will this be a check and balance to that? I mean, not that it really I mean, people don't actually do that. So um, I don't know. One of the things that keeps on coming up is this idea of ballot harvesting, um, which is a hypothetical form of voter fraud where people like gather imaginary people, which I always imagine with sacks like Santa, (laughs) gather hundreds of blank ballots when they're mailed out from like like from mailboxes, which is, you know, a federal, you know, you're not supposed to tamper with people's mail. So there's like a federal offense piece of that too. So you don't even have to worry about the voting fraud because this person's already committing a federal offense. Mm -hmm. And then they like forge a bunch of stuff and then collect it all and then drop it off all at once. I think that's what ballot harvesting is. And then the other theory on ballot harvesting is like sort of you coerce a bunch of people and then bring in all their ballots all at once. And so that came up a bunch of times. Oh, wow. That's um, a new I one. think that ballot harvesting, and I've made this joke a few other times, okay. is a lot like partial birth abortions in that they do not exist. <laughs> They're just a thing that have become very vivid in the imagination of people who are concerned about either abortion or voter fraud. And they've taken on the this life of their own, but neither thing actually exists in real life they're the things that go bump in the night yes so we talked about that on the floor a lot and there are actually uh, mechanisms in the bill in that someone can't drop off more than a certain number of ballots at once Hmm. and i'm not as a person running allowed to drop off anyone's ballot other than mine and my partners or something like that Because you have so much time on your hands to run around to people's houses and gather up ballots. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone working on my campaign is allowed to do it either. But. Because they also have so much time to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> that's the bill. I think we have a little bit of a delay between us today. I think we do too. Um, I don't know about you, but there's some pretty high winds where I am, so... Oh, they have no winds where I am. Interesting. Our computers really are nice. probably just in shock from all the Zoom meetings. Maybe. There's some really nice flowers growing Ooh. out of the ground where I am. That's nice. Spring ephemerals. I think I toasted to them last week, didn't you I? You did. I, they really get me. I might need to toast to them again. You would be welcome to. So all those bills I mentioned are all in various stages. Um, we sort of got a reminder from a listener that a little more process might be helpful for people. Right. So all the bills I mentioned this time around are all sort of actively being negotiated between the House and the Senate. Mm-hmm. And they're all likely to make it across the finish line. But some of them might be just sort of concurred with by the House or the Senate and then sent on to the governor. And some of them might move to a committee of conference And what happens when a bill moves to a committee of conference is there's three members from the House and three members from the Senate. They are put in a imaginary room together. It's a real room when there's no pandemic, but right now it's an imaginary room, a Zoom room. They're put in that room together and they need to iron out the differences between the two bills and come up with a new bill. And the new bill, which is called the report of the committee of conference, 
can only use material from the two versions of the bill. They're mm. not allowed to throw new things into the mix. Okay. So if you think about sort of negotiation, it's interesting because often in a really good negotiation, you sort of find a third way. Mm. There's no third way available in a committee of conference because you're just working with material from the two versions. And then um, everyone has to sign on and agree to it. And then that then gets sort of voted on in, and concurred with in both bodies. Okay. And then it goes to the governor. And so that's what I meant when I said the budget was in a committee of conference. Gotcha. And when you said when everyone has to sign on, you meant the the six members who had been put in the mm -hmm. imaginary room. Yeah, and actually, I'm sorry, it's the like a majority of the House members and a majority of the Senate members. It doesn't have to be. Oh, okay. House. Gotcha. <clears throat> so the um, family medical leave bill went to a committee of conference two years ago. Mm hmm and um, one of the conferees did not sign on to it. Um, so it does happen. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So do you, does it feel at this point like the legislature is going to make their May 22nd deadline? That is still the rumor on the street. Um, the fact that the budget's in conference is a really good sign. Mm -hmm. There's some concerns because we got um, new federal guidance over the weekend on right. how we can spend ARPA dollars. And so some reshuffling needs to happen, um, but that will happen and that seems okay. Mm -hmm. And then um, there's a lot of bills that are still in the mix, but they all seem fairly close to the finish line. And the ones that aren't close to the finish line have been moved very far away from the finish line so as not to distract people. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, it still feels like we will be finished next Friday. Wow. Yeah. Well, it's a huge difference because if we remember this time last year, we the pandemic was still, you were still shuffling all the pandemic issues. And mm -hmm. um, when, when did the legislature officially adjourn last year? Wasn't it in the fall? So the l last year... Um, the legislature usually adjourns right around this time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but last and then doesn't start again until January 1st. You know, you know, that'll go telling other people. Yeah. We're letting the, we're letting yeah. the others know. <laughs> um, and then on um, last year, I think we went through to July. Okay. That sounds, yeah. And took August off and then came back from a, for a month in October. October. Okay. We took like August and maybe some of September off and came back in October. Mm -hmm. And I think the appropriations committee was still meeting through those and a few policy committees were still meeting through that gap time. Mm -hmm. The ways and means. Yeah. Yeah. It was a session that felt like it just never, it never ended. It didn't ever end, which is, you know, there, as I've said a hundred times before, there's definitely a place for a professional legislature. But when you have a part-time legislature where people have jobs and have made promises to employers to be back full-time at a certain date, it's really hard to be flexible around that stuff. So mm -hmm. I know in my workplace, people were getting fairly frustrated and I was feeling fairly filled with guilt and I was lucky to keep my job through the summer. Um, yeah, but like I know, you know, I have a colleague who works at a sawmill and her boss needs need someone to be milling the wood like it can't just build up you know right um right. and she can't cover it from home 
in between sort of the cracks of the day. So the longer we go on, the more members we actually just sort of lose because they need to go back to work. Mm-hmm. And so vote counts get lower and lower and the chances of doing something controversial get lower and lower. So that's part of the reason that we try to stick to the deadline. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a good point. Well, I mean, one of the things we've talked about a lot is who can actually afford to serve and who can yes. take time off work. And that's not everybody. No. And who can afford um, health insurance mm-hmm. if they're working part time? Right. So excuse my ignorance on this one. I thought lawmakers received health insurance. Oh, no, no. Huh. No, we do not. No. That's interesting. No, we do not receive health insurance. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I, I can't speak for that. all voters, but to me, that seems kind of logical. Yeah. I mean, a lot of my colleagues are over 65, and so they're on Medicare. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's actually probably wouldn't even be that expensive to give us health insurance because not all that many of us would be eligible for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we w- could ideally join the state employees health insurance system the other you know it's an existing program and that we would you know that certainly the staff that work with us are part of Mm -hmm. so yeah that would be really cool okay food for thought yeah Yeah. Um, anyone out there want to start a movement to get me health insurance please do it's really, um, it's very challenging politically to work on issues that would help bring more people into the political process because it looks self-serving from the outside. Yeah. Um, so we generally don't ever change these things, even though they'd probably be in the best interest of Vermonters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, I mean, that is kind of a slippery slope when people are voting on their own salaries or they're voting on their own benefits. I mean, I can see how that's a a slippery slope and the way we do structure it is we structure it for like two biennium from now the thing mm-hmm. the change will happen so that it won't immediately impact any of the people who are voting on it but it is still hard yeah, yeah. we have just about five minutes before we go to break and then i know we're going to talk about some of the tax things that your your committee ways and means is working on mm-hmm. um but in these last five minutes anything else you think people should know about the end of the session or keep their eye on another thing that's um really interesting that i'm feeling really excited about it hasn't been finalized yet but we um i think we've come to some pretty decent agreement is the unemployment insurance system which was a um from my perspective probably the greatest failure of state government that we've seen for decades that was Um, a mess yes and a lot of it absolutely not the fault of the unemployment insurance division we had an ancient computer system that was not ready for the task we did have an unemployment trust fund that was ready for the task and we actually had one of the most solvent unemployment trust funds in the country some states bankrupted theirs and had to borrow money from the federal government um but the way unemployment the way um the trust fund is filled is based on um, calculations that involve how empty it is, hmm. how much the wage base has been the previous year, how much this been, and how much has been paid out the previous year. Right. And because this was such an anomalous year in always, <laughs> um, 
it would have sort of automatically gone to the most expensive fee schedule for um, businesses to pay unemployment insurance. Right. And so we have been sort of considering legislation to remedy that and really wanted to make sure while we were remedying that and saving significant dollars for businesses that beneficiaries, those receiving unemployment, were also seeing those improvements in the system and the acknowledgement of the challenges that we have had with the system and the beneficiaries over the last year. And so we um, have been debating various things like increasing the reimbursement percentage. Um, so it's only 57% that's reimbursed of people's wages. Um, increasing the maximum amount. So even if, you know, sometimes you don't even get the 57 if your wages are high enough um, because there's a maximum payout, but didn't want to do that because um, it's the lowest income Vermonters who are receiving unemployment that we most want to help. Yeah. Um, and it wouldn't help them because they're not at the maximum. We talked about a dependent care benefit, and that's actually what the Senate voted out, was just having an increased payment to folks who have dependents. A few other states do that. Mm -hmm. And so as we worked through all of those ideas, the um, cobalt-based computer system, which is, you know, like has a little flashing cursor, and we've heard about really so many stories about things that have gone wrong with it this year, um, the commissioner felt really clear that his office was not capable of making any of those changes. And um, to be frank, I lost a little bit of my patience because I really, I understand that administrators and members of the administration often don't want to engage in something for policy reasons mm -hmm. and that's fine. But for me, I need them to be explicit about that rather than sort of hiding behind administrative concerns. Right. And um, so I said to the commissioner, you know, we have a spaceship on Mars right now. And so I'm, I'm wondering what you would need in order to make this happen. Not that you just can't make it happen because mm -hmm. Mars, and right. this is just the computer system in the state of Vermont. So what we wound up with is um, I think we are going to one, be able to significant to um, add a new supplemental benefit. So when the federal supplemental benefit of $300 goes away, we will be able to add a new Vermont-based supplemental benefit in order to increase everyone's benefits out into the future over the next 10 something years. Hmm. And that's gonna be worth about $100 million in benefits we're gonna be paying out to Vermonters. And then we put in place this really awesome task force study to look at all of the problems with the unemployment insurance system, how fraud does happen, how fraud prevention keeps people from getting their benefits, how the system could be configured to better meet the needs of Vermonters that are on it, how the system could be better configured to meet the needs of employers who are working with it, how it can actually like meet a modern economy versus the economy that it was designed for in the 50s, like all kinds of really awesome stuff, some really great government accountability built in. And I'm so excited for both the money we're gonna be getting to Vermonters, for how we were able to fix the system so employers' rates weren't skyrocketing and a task force. I love a good task force. Yes. And when does this task force start its work? As soon as we sign the little bill. Yay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Oh, I hope we can revisit that again. I'd like to hear how that goes. Totally. Cool. Okay. Well, we need to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. So hang tight. The Montpelier Happy Hour.
Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can also find us on iTunes at our website, the Montpelier Happy Hour at Captivate.fm, our Facebook page, as well as Emily's uh, social media as well. Oh, and BCTV. We can't forget BCTV because I know that's where my mom watches us. She does? She does. Hi, old as mom. <laughs> um, Emily, you are a vice vice chair of the Ways and Means Committee, and one of the things you've been working on, of course, is tax policy. And the state is going through um, revising its t- tax policy, or it, it has the study committee. It's just released its report. Um, but you mentioned the last time we talked about um, some federal changes that are happening. And what interests me about that is so often when you say the word taxes to people, it's something people usually have a very strong opinion about. And I know for my family, especially because many of us live in very rural communities, there's this sense that we pay a lot in property taxes, but we're, they're not really seeing what their taxes are doing. And so it can be very frustrating because they feel like money's just kind of going out the door and they're not really seeing what, what it happens, what happens with it. But you have um, some other thoughts on taxes and income inequality. And I would really love to hear more about that before we dive into what your committee's doing. Yeah, absolutely. I also want to say I have a pet theory and it's very much like a totally imaginary pet theory that I'm probably never going to do anything about. But I think that if we had municipal garbage recycling compost pickup in the entire state of Vermont, people would feel very differently about taxes. I I actually think there's something to that. Mm-hmm. I like I can't believe how lucky I am that a truck drives by once a week and picks up the waste from the end of my driveway. And I, I am blown away by how incredibly rare that is in the state of Vermont, including in Burlington, you have to contract it privately mm-hmm. for parts of it. I mean, it's just wild. So anyway, roads, garbage, those are generally the things that people think of when they think of paying taxes. And here in Vermont, we have a lot of potholes. And most of us don't have garbage pickup. And so it's hard to say, like, what are my taxes good for? Yeah. But one of the things, and they're good for lots of things. And, you know, we talk about how great administration can be and schools and stuff like that. But today we're talking about taxes and income inequality. Mm -hmm. Um, And so there's a few pieces of that. So taxes structure sort of structure our money in a lot of ways and like how people invest and how people don't invest. Um, And so one piece of that, that um, is really huge is where tax breaks happen. Mm -hmm. So, and what is like, what is credited with taxes? So um, there's a book that I'm really excited about that I can't get my phone to show up. I think it's called The Whiteness of Wealth. I'm not exactly sure. Um, That talks about how tax structures have incentivized wealth development in white families Mm -hmm. and not in black families um, over generations. And that's a big reason for the wealth gap. And so like certain family arrangements are incentivized in our tax structure. And I think we're all sort of fairly familiar with that idea. 
Mm -hmm. um, and we don't think of it as incentivizing family structures. We think of it as um, accommodating family structures, but those are generally the family structures that are the norm that are accommodated right. and those that are not are not right. Um, right. Mm -hmm. So other aspects that are really important to think about are pieces like the earned income tax credit mm -hmm. um, or <coughs> child and dependent care tax credits. So I know that for me, um, for, you know, most of my son's younger years, at the end of the year, I would get back when I filed my taxes, I would get back this great big credit and it would always be exactly as much as summer camp costs. Huh. And like the price of summer camp would change. And like summer camp is the weirdest thing to a working parent. Cause like, it's not recreation. It's like, you need somewhere for your kid to be during the day. It's childcare. Mm -hmm. um, but it's much like harder to navigate than childcare, which is already hard to navigate. We've talked about that a lot. And, you know, once your kid's public school age, they just go to school and then you have to figure out summer in a different place. And anyway, it's very expensive. And so like, it was almost like government has sort of created a savings program for me that would sort of save up for summer camp, which was this really out of control expense um, in my cash flow for a long time. So what it, and then there's other pieces of it that um, can really, tax structures can also really like incentivize the hoarding of wealth. Um, so like the way capital gains are taxed or not taxed, um, the way wealth is taxed and not taxed, the way, you know, property might be taxed, but non-tangible um, wealth might not be taxed. And so there are systems that we put in place that sort of cause wealth to be hoarded more or less, essentially. Um, and often we've talked about the problem of our state sort of welfare systems, using the phrase welfare very lightly, that, you know, they're complicated to navigate. You have to sign up for food stamps here and dependent care benefits here and health insurance here. And each of them have their own shame cycles attached to them and their own barriers to jump through and their own eligibility requirements. And we often ask the question like, what would happen if we just gave people money instead? Right, right. And so what our tax structure can do in a lot of cases is just give people money instead. Mm -hmm. And at the federal level, that's much easier because um, revenue on a federal level is not actually tied to how much the IRS collects. It's hmm. um, about how sort of how much money we make and how much money works within the Federal Reserve and stuff like that, which we're not going to get into right now. But it means that um, tax rebates don't necessarily cost the federal government money, and tax credits don't necessarily cost the federal government money in the same way they do in on the state level where we are not able to create currency interesting okay because we don't have a state bank we have right. a federal right so that's sort of the big framework for like taxes and wealth and taxes and wealth equality and inequality mm -hmm. and then there's just like sort of the basics of like we don't really tax the rich and we tend to put more of our taxes on poorer people than richer people because flat taxes are easier to administer than progressive taxes, sales tax versus, versus income tax, for instance. There's all of that, but that's not what we're going to talk about as much today. I feel like I'm in a classroom, Olga. <laughs> um, you kind of are, because I think 
you know, I think people are really clear about their frustrations with taxes, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean we actually understand how they work. And I'm learning more and more every day. And I am so, um, I feel really blessed that the chair of my committee, um, who I really enjoy working with, was both a member of legislative council and then worked um, for the governor's administration many governors ago, and then was the commissioner of the Department of Taxes, and then left the administration to run for office and now is what has been the chair of Ways and Means for a number of years. So I have a lot to learn about her, about taxes from her, and I'm really delighted to do that every day. It's an incredible opportunity. Remind us who the chair is. Her name is Janet Ansel, and she will come on the show at some point in a couple of weeks when our good legislative good. schedule opens up a little bit more. Good, good. So, um, another interesting thing about Vermont and taxes: we, some states, link up their tax system and their tax choices to the federal system and federal choices. Hmm. And that is, um, we talk about that as linking up or conformity, how much we conform to federal tax regulations and rules. Vermont does not have rolling conformity. So we don't automatically agree with the federal treatment of taxes every year because Mm -hmm. federal treatment of taxes changes every year. We have to formally make a decision in statute whether we want to agree with federal tax law or not agree with federal tax law. Ah, so you have to do this every time federal tax law changes? We do. Mm, Okay. That's called static conformity, meaning Mm -hmm. our conformity is set in the time that we last said, yes, we agree. Okay. So, Biden administration, new era in America, the money is flowing like water, (sighs) human rights are almost being respected in some places sometimes, not everywhere, definitely not globally, maybe not at the border. We're doing like better on gay rights in schools, kind of. Mm-hmm. Anyway, new era, I should be more optimistic about this. Sorry. It's just, it's only been a hundred days. Exactly. You know, okay. there's, we, there's still time to go. There's a lot of time to go. But one of the things that, um, Biden administration has been super focused on, even when the, within this first 100 days, is child poverty. Mm-hmm. And in the American Rescue Plan Act, which is such an awkward thing to say, ARPA, mm-hmm. but it's the American Rescue Plan Act. That's why they call it ARPA. If I ever have a dog, I'm going to name it ARPA. It just sounds like a dog's name. It does. It does. I think you should get a dog and name it ARPA. <laughs> I think that should be like your goal for the week. <laughs> I'm more of a cat person. <laughs> Maybe just this. Sometimes there are cats like dogs. Maybe if you got a cat and named it Arpa, it would act like a dog. Oh, okay. 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 We'll, Do we have a plan? We have a plan. Next week, you're going to show all of our listeners your new pet named Arpa? I can't. My landlord doesn't let me have pets. <laughs> it would be a lot to commit to, even if you could. Yeah, but I, I think about it. <laughs> so, Maybe- Arpa. ARPA, and mm-hmm. perhaps one of our listeners wants to go find themselves a pet named ARPA and if, share it with us on social media. Please do. We want pictures, definitely pictures of, of the Still new baby. Steal old idea. <laughs> so, 
ARPA had a whole lot of changes in it um, and a whole lot of money that came at the states, but some very specific parts of it that are tax related explicitly are the earned income tax credit and the child and dependent care credit. So in Vermont law, the way we figure out the Vermont earned income tax credit is that it's 36% of the federal earned income tax credit and that it's fully refundable. So that means that the tax credit isn't just used to reduce your tax liability, but it's that money that you can get back at the end of the year if your tax liability is negative. That's mm -hmm. what a refundable tax credit means. Right. So ARPA expanded the earned income tax credit for individuals without children. So for tax year 2021, which is the one we are living inside right now, the maximum credit for individuals without children increases from $543 to $1,402. That is almost a tripling. Mm -hmm. It repeals the maximum age limit, which was set at 65. It lowers the minimum age from 25 to 19. And it changes the maximum investment income threshold, which won't be as interesting to people. And people can use tax year 2019 instead of tax year 2020 to determine income for tax year 2021. Huh. So people can look at their income from pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. So what this means for Vermont is it really like significantly raises the opportunities for Vermonters without children to be getting an earned income tax credit that's much larger from the federal government. But if we link up, and that's something we're planning to do most likely this week, unless something goes drastically wrong, Vermont's 36% will also grow really significantly because it would be 36% of $1,402, not 36% not of $543. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Yes, it does. Okay. And so we could see Vermonters maximum earned income tax credit go up to like $2,000. Yeah. Do we have any idea um, how many Vermonters might be eligible for that maximum tax credit? Oh, you know what? I have a spreadsheet with that in it, but it would take me a very long pause to answer that question. What we do know um, is that it would cost about $6.19 million in fiscal year 2022 in order to for us to even do that link up. So that's how much money would go out to Vermonters. Wow, okay. Yeah. Um, and Vermont's percentage of earned income tax credit that we um, link up with is one of the highest in the country. Mm -hmm. Um, the only state I think that has a higher one than us is South Carolina. Hmm. Yeah. At 62%, but everyone else is below our 36. So 
That's really interesting. The other one is, do you have questions about that or shall I move on to our next no, text? No, keep moving. I think that sounds interesting. Okay. Yeah. Great. I like the idea that more people getting money. And I, I have to say, as someone who doesn't have children, um, it's, I often feel kind of passed over. Um, and according to my grandmother, you know, since I am unmarried without children, she has questions about um, my validity as a human being anyways. But that's another story for another day. <laughs> Very valid human. Thank you. And I think I the know. decision to not have children is one of the most, I don't actually even understand why people have children. And I love my child very much, but <laughs> it, I mean, it just makes everything more complicated. Um, yes, it does. And so that's one of the things I was talking about. When I was talking about the book, The Whiteness of Wealth, like how our family structures are really incentivized or disincentivized by our tax structure mm -hmm. and how that helps some of us accumulate more wealth than others. And we already know about that if we think about gendered relationships. You know, a, um, a single woman makes a lot less money than a single man. Um, but we also know that a white male gay couple is going to have sort of the highest income mm -hmm. of all. Um, and so all kinds of interesting pieces of that. And that trickles down to tax, um, tax policy and tax credits. Mm -hmm. And I find it really hard sometimes to look at this, you know, to do this work in a way that I just don't want to start giggling about with excitement about all of, you know, the extra tax benefits I'm going to get. So that's an <laughs> awkward way to do that. Um, I suspect most people don't consider giggling when they're reading through tax policy. I mean, they do if they find out like $5,000 is going to arrive in the mail from, you know, President Biden. Mm -hmm. I think you giggle at that, right? That's a, that's a giggly yeah. moment. Yes. Um, so the other big one, um, is the child and dependent care credit. And so Vermont's child and dependent care credit is sort of complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, so Vermont's child and dependent care credit that's non-refundable is 24% of the federal child and dependent care credit. So it's a similar structure to the um, earned income tax credit. But we also have a refundable one that's specifically for lower income folks. Mm -hmm. And that's set at 50%. And I'll get a little bit into that more. So, and this is a real significant expansion. So at the federal level, it's entirely refundable for tax year 21. And it's a $4,000 maximum credit for qualifying individual and 8,000 for two or more individuals. Right now, without these changes, the credit is $2,100 for two or more individuals. So that's a huge expansion from $2,000 up to $8,000. It's calculated by taking 50% of qualifying expenses, whereas right now it's between 20 and 35, it's either 20%, between 20% and 35%. Um, and the maximum expenses that can be taken into account are increased from 3,000 for a child to 8,000 for a child, and from 6,000 for two or more children to 16,000 for two or more children. So what you're actually able to sort of count as an exemption has also significantly gone up. Mm -hmm. It also significantly increased the income limits. So current law, the credit 
percentage is phased out by 1% for every $2,000 above $15,000, which means that like it drops out somewhere in like your 45, 50 range. Mm -hmm. But the new federal law is that it's 1% for every $2,000 above $125,000. Oh, for an individual or a couple? The full benefits, the full credits up to an income level of $125,000 a year. Yeah. Because a family making $125,000 a year with two kids is likely spending like $50,000 of that on childcare. I mean, it's a real acknowledgement right. of like what the cost of care looks like in a household with more than one kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is also a really exciting link up change. Um, because Vermont's, because most of the changes to the child independent care credit in um, are at the higher limits being sort of included rather than more money necessarily going to lower income folks. Mm-hmm. Um, and our ch- our tax credit is not refundable um, in Vermont. The link up will have less of an impact than the earned income tax credit link up. Okay. But it will still have a pretty significant impact and that is really exciting. Um, one of the interesting things as we've been working through the earned income tax credit has sort of like very clear impacts, right? Like they're mm-hmm. in front of you. When we work through the child independent care credit impacts, it's interesting in Vermont because if a family is receiving um, child care subsidy, they're likely not paying very much in child care costs. And so they're not as eligible for this credit for the costs that they paid and that's more likely to happen at the lower income end because they'd be more likely to be eligible for the child care credits. Hmm. But that's the only time that it's refundable. So, um, so there's a little bit of give and take there. There's a little bit of give and take there. And I would really, I'm sort of looking at some math with joint fiscal office to see like, are there tweaks we can make to make sure we're really like getting into that benefit trough that we've talked about a few times, right? right? right. There's a population of folks with kids in like the 35,000 to the 50,000 a year range ish who um, really have this very challenging financial time because of the costs of things and the tax scale of things and what benefits are available and what aren't. Mm -hmm. Um, We're, income is experienced as flat, even when it's going up almost $15,000 a year. And so wondering if the child dependent care credit is a way of sort of, of tweaking that as a way of helping with some of that. So those are both some really exciting federal changes that are going to have a big impact on Vermonters lives. Yes. And, you know, I have to say, Emily, not only was that an impressive explanation, but you did it with five minutes to spare. For the show, woohoo! Thanks. <laughs> a lot of listeners calling in and saying, "Like this is the funnest show you all have ever had." They'd be crazy not to. They would be crazy not to. I mean, I've talked practically the whole time. We didn't have any guests on. We're basically just talking about numbers that no one can see in front of them, so they're really hard to process. I think this was a screaming success of a show today. It was. It is. It is. And I think we need to toast to how fully. This show reflects our goal of going deep geek and just be really nerdy. (laughs) Thank you. And if any listeners have made it this far through me just spouting percentages and you actually want to see any of these numbers in front of you, please feel free to comment on social media or send an email. And 
I will send some charts your way. Mm-hmm. Well, because we talk a lot about uh, income and whether people can actually afford to live and work in Vermont, which is really important for you and I, because we love this state. And as, as um, in the weeds as this conversation may have been, it really is crucial to how much people take home yeah. um, at the end of a tax year. And the more you can take home, the more you can put towards your family, which in the long run goes back to the community. Absolutely. And one of the things that we've seen so much this year is that the more money Vermonters have in their pockets, because of so much of these federal benefits, the more that circulates through our economy and it winds up in state coffers so that we can provide more centralized benefits to Vermonters. And so there's really like a glorious virtuous cycle about this kind of federal spending. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what you talked about today with some of the increases um, with like the earned income tax credit, the child um, tax credit, it feels to me like one nice thing this pandemic did is it made a lot of people really truly realize the cost of things and how so many of our what are supposed to be support systems really need to catch up to how people are actually living right now Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, and we're we're gonna work on that and get it done well on that note i would like to toast to understanding the cost of things (laughs) and understanding what it takes for a community to thrive and to you and your committee for diving into these very weedy, very dense tax policies and making things better for the rest of us. To you, Olga, and to the fact of a public announcement that the tax filing deadline is Monday. Yes, the 17th. And people should file their taxes because there's also an extra sort of child there's also a child benefit that the feds are paying out directly that you're you're eligible for up until um when you file on monday so don't be late with your taxes okay i haven't done mine yet but i have a really exciting weekend planned so i cheers 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 i handed mine in and i was told i was being an adult i almost cried (laughs) cheers to adulting thank you for joining us on the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW, 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. You can find us on iTunes as well as our Facebook page. And Emily, remind us where folks can find you. Folks can start on emilycornheiser.org. You can probably spell that a wide variety of ways, and you would still find your way to my website, emilycornheiser.org, where you can find links to my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, email address, phone number, as well as a link to join my weekly Sunday community conversations via Zoom. Thank you. Have a great weekend, everybody.